when he finally throws up his hands and says, Oh, wretched man that I am. wretched man that I am. Have you ever said those words? Wanting to do what is pleasing to God but not being able to is a miserable experience. Even worse, trying to free ourselves in the wrong way will lead to getting deeper into bondage. The good news is that we can find deliverance, and God has devoted several chapters in his word to this very subject for the purpose of helping the believer walk in the full liberty that he intends for us. This week on the Bible Truth Podcast, Bill Prost will wrap up the subject of deliverance from sin. If you have any questions on this subject or on past subjects, please contact us at info at bibletruthpodcast.com. Thank you very much, Josh. In our first podcast, we talked about deliverance from the power of sin in our lives and pointed out how that this was distinct from being delivered from the penalty of sin through the precious blood of Christ. We pointed out that through the death and resurrection of Christ, you and I are now seen as dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And we pointed out that baptism was the outward sign of this and the practical taking on of that position before God and also, of course, before man. Now, every true believer is entitled, as we get in Romans 6 and verse 11, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. However, we come to the seventh chapter of Romans, and here a different subject is taken up, that of being dead to the law. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was under law, they put themselves under it, saying clearly to the Lord, all that the Lord hath commanded, we will do. But they only found out to their sorrow that no one could keep it. No matter how much of a law God puts man under, the old sinful self can never live up to God's standard. That is very true. And... When we come to Christ and accept him as our savior, we have to recognize, first of all, that we cannot save ourselves. However, we learn experimentally in our Christian life that that old sinful nature has no good left in it. And sometimes that lesson takes a long while to learn. In Romans 7, God uses the illustration of a husband and a wife. The wife is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. 
But when he dies, or if he should die, then the wife is no longer bound to her husband. She's free to be married to another man. In that way, you and I as believers are not only dead to sin, as we saw in Romans 6, but we are also dead to the law. What does this mean? It simply means that just as Israel found out that they could not keep the law in the Old Testament, so you and I as believers cannot live our Christian life by some kind of law. It may not be the law of Moses, but it may be some other set of rules and regulations that we make up for ourselves in order to govern our Christian life. That was the problem with those in the assemblies in the province of Galatia. And when Paul wrote the book of Galatians to them, it was to point out to them that not only were they saved through the grace of God, but that they were to live their lives as Christians through the grace of God. That brings in the power of the Spirit of God, which we will get to later. But first of all, let's talk about Romans 7 for a moment. What happens to the man in Romans 7? A little boy whom I knew very well, and still do because he's my grandson, was brightly saved when he was fairly young. But maybe two weeks later, he came to his father with tears in his eyes and said, Father, I still do bad things. Maybe I told that story before. But the point is, if we try to live our Christian life and try to use a set of rules and regulations by which to live, we will find that that arouses that old sinful self. What does that mean? It simply means that if someone says to me, don't do this or don't do that, it immediately arouses in my sinful self a desire to do it. <clears throat> we are not to live in the power of our old sinful self, but rather in the power of that new life that God has given us and by the power of the Spirit of God, which is the energy of that new life. Once again, in Romans 7, it brings in the thought of a dead man. It reminds me of a story in England where the police charged a man with a serious crime. And they said, not only do we know who did it, but we've caught the man. The only little problem is the man is dead. They said, we can't do anything about it. We can't punish him. We can't put him in jail. We can't execute him. He's beyond us because he's already dead. That's the way it is with the believer. When we recognize that, we recognize that we cannot live the Christian life with a set of rules and regulations. The regulations may be good. They may be excellent, just as the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, as it says in Romans 7 and verse 12, is holy 
And it says the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. But what did it do? All it did was prove that the man was utterly guilty and unable to keep the law. So what happens when I try to live the Christian life by a set of rules and regulations? I find out what we get in verse 15 of Romans 7. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Why is that? It's because I have a new life in Christ. God has imparted that new life to me by his spirit, using his word. But I am not yet in the full liberty in that sense of being truly saved. I am not yet indwelt with the spirit of God. I do not realize the fullness of blessing that God has for me. What happens then? <laughs> Without going over all the details, we find that the poor man in Romans 7 loves to do what is right, but finds he can't do it. And at the end of the chapter in verse 24, he finally, as we would say in English, throws up his hands and says, Oh, wretched man that I am. But then he recognizes something, and this is the key to the problem. He doesn't say, what shall deliver me or how shall I be delivered? He says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Ah, there is the key. The power outside of himself is there to deliver him in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the blessedness of Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, the individual now realizes that he is not only delivered by the blood of Christ from the penalty for his sins, he's fully delivered from the power of sin in his life by being dead and risen with Christ, and that he is no longer to live, as Romans 8 brings before us, in flesh, but rather in spirit. What does that mean? That simply means that now that I am indwelt by the spirit of God, that spirit is the energy of my new life in Christ. God says, I don't want you to be thinking about sin. I don't want you to be occupied with it. <clears throat> I don't want you to have that old nature, as we would say, aroused by a set of rules and regulations. If you walk in the spirit, and that's referred to in Galatians chapter 5, and we'll talk a bit more about that later, but in Galatians chapter 5, it says there, verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That simply means that my mind, my heart are thinking about something better. It's not a matter of those rules and regulations saying I must not do this and I must do that. It's rather allowing the spirit of God to lead and guide according to his word, 
and in keeping with that new life that I have. And then I will please the Lord, but it will not be a matter of trying my hardest using human energy. It will rather be the energy of the Spirit of God. This may be a little difficult to understand. We sometimes have to meditate on it, think about it a little, but it's extremely important and very necessary in our Christian lives to let it take hold of us. You mentioned walking in the spirit is the way we have deliverance. What does that look like in a practical way? It may be hard to describe, but it simply means that the spirit of God, having indwelt every true believer, is there and willing to lead and guide. He does not need any prompting or, if we could say it, encouragement to do that. He will do it as long as I remove the obstacles and the hindrances for him to do it. How do I hinder the Spirit of God in my life? By deliberately allowing sinful thoughts and maybe ultimately sinful words and actions in my life, then we read that the Spirit of God is grieved. Then the Spirit of God has to occupy me, not with Christ, but rather with the sin, until I confess it before the Lord. That is another subject, but I believe we did mention it in the first podcast. It's in 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The minute an evil thought comes to my mind, I have the ability through Christ to say, that is not I anymore. That old self has no rights. And then I simply turn away from it. But if I savor that thought, if I allow it to reverberate, to settle in my mind, I gratify my flesh in thinking about it, then I've sinned. And I need to confess it to the Lord as sin. Or maybe I allow it to go further in words and actions that are sinful. I need to confess that to the Lord. But once I do that, then I'm forgiven. And the Spirit of God, once again, is free to energize that new life, to occupy me with something better. Then what happens in my life is that there's joy in my soul as a result of the Spirit of God being able to give me joy through occupying me with Christ. And then I don't have any appetite for the things of the flesh. They don't have that appeal to me anymore. Why? because I've got something better. I'd like to use a simple illustration. My wife's grandfather, when he was uh, alive and he was out walking in his neighborhood for exercise, he said it was not unusual to come across two boys, perhaps small boys that were fighting. What did he do? Did he go up and give them a lecture about fighting? No, he would pull out in those days a nickel from his pocket and say, boys, I'll give you each a nickel if, you're, if you'll stop fighting. 
He said it always worked. If it were bigger boys, he had to he had to pull out a couple of quarters, but it always worked. Why? Because the money was worth more than the fighting. And of course, the first thing they did was hightail it down to the store to get some candy or some ice cream. That's the way it is in the things of the Lord. The things of Christ are far more important, far more appetizing to that new life. And the old nature, those things don't have the same appeal to us anymore. That's very good, Bill. And I was thinking as you were going over Romans 7, just how helpful it is to have the truth of this brought out. When we're ignorant, we can do things that we might think are helping, but they're really doing more harm than good, such as putting ourselves under some kind of a law, because we think that's what we need to live a holy life for God, but not understanding the truth that we have in Romans 7, we mm. actually end up putting ourselves into more bondage than we were in to start with. And I think of it like someone who, who owns a piece of equipment, let's say a, an automobile, and it doesn't start. And they don't know what to do, so they just kick it. They don't know what else to do. Someone else comes along who has the knowledge of how the, the car works and the different systems and the engine and so on. They can pop the hood and get right to the root of the problem. And it seems that with deliverance, through Romans 7, there's really the discovery made that there are two natures. That mm. sin is not me. It is a nature that's dwelling in me. And coming to realize the fact that I have two natures, and that one is a nature that desires to do the will of God, and the other is a nature that is completely beyond hope, leads us to the conclusion, as we have in Romans 7, that only by leaving that nature where it is and looking outside of ourselves to Christ can we have deliverance from that. And, and not understanding that will lead to us really addressing even New Testament exhortations, addressing those things to the old nature, addressing those things to the flesh, and building a law out of New Testament doctrine even. And ultimately, it results in more sin and death. Well, that is so true, Josh. And uh, most of us as believers have found that at some points in our lives, we have been through an experience of Romans 7, even though we were truly saved. The man in Romans 7 fails every time. We as believers do not do that, but sometimes we get into that mode and we can, in a legal way, set up certain rules and regulations by which we live. And as one brother said to me, in Christianity, we do not make rules, but we do make decisions. How do we make those decisions? By looking to the Lord and by asking him for guidance according to the truth of his word and by the spirit of God. And of course, the spirit of God will never lead contrary to the word of God, nor will it ever lead contrary to the holiness of God's nature. 
but we don't live by rules and regulations. Let me use one more quick example. This is a personal one. When we were first married, there was a young woman and her husband who worked for the local hospital where I was practicing. They didn't have very many friends because they had just moved to the area and they invited us to come to their home for supper. I don't blame my wife for this attitude, but uh, she said, well, we can't very well go. They're not Christians and uh, uh, we, we, don't, we don't really want to have fellowship with worldly people, do we? we? I don't think we should accept. Well, I read that verse in Corinthians where Paul says, if any of them that are unbelievers invite you to a feast and ye be disposed to go. I said, Paul entertained the thought that there might be an opportunity when they would go. I said, I think we should accept, but we'll bring Christ into the conversation and we'll just see what happens. If there's an interest, they'll pick up on it. If there's no interest, well, that'll become evident too. And we did go and we had a nice visit with them and we brought Christ into the conversation. Sadly, there was no interest and there were no further invitations and no further attempts on their part to set up a friendship. I mean, we still knew them and I saw her every day when I walked in the door of the hospital because she was the receptionist, but there were no more attempts at getting together. So the Lord would have us make decisions in our lives rather than making a little set of rules that say, okay, if this comes along, this is how I react. If that comes along, there's the way I react to it. I've enjoyed thinking about the exhortations in the word of God for us as, as Christians, far from being a law, they are directives for the new nature. We have the life of Christ. And so the word of God gives us the path that we should walk in. And it's not a law to us. It's directives for a nature that we have, the life of Christ that wants to please God. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of an expression in um, James. James speaks of the perfect law of liberty. Hmm. If you have a dog and you put down a pile of hay and you ask the dog to eat the hay, it's pure bondage because it goes against his nature. If you have a horse and you ask the horse to eat the hay, it's pure liberty because he has a nature that loves to eat the hay. That is what the word of God is for us. We need to take it up that way, not as a list of rules, but as we have the life of Christ. And when we take it up that way in the the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, it brings life and liberty to us in our pathway. Amen. Join us next time on the Bible Truth Podcast, where we will take up the subject of the Holy Spirit. If you have any questions about the topic, please email us at info at BibleTruthPodcast.com.